Welcome to No Sounds Are Forbidden. I'm Matthew Friedman. Well, our summer hiatus turned out to be a bit longer than expected. Unfortunately, the challenges of relocating and rebuilding Cat Tango Studios turned out to be pretty daunting, but we're finally back and just in time for the holidays. So in that spirit of celebration, this episode is the first of what I hope will be many avant-garde holiday music spectaculars. A spectacular spectacular, as Eric Satie said in Baz Luhrmann's film Moulin Rouge. Of course, modernism and avant-garde art aren't exactly what most people normally think about at Christmas, but if you're listening now, you clearly aren't most people. And neither is my guest in this episode, Dr. Jill Rogers, a musicologist and historian at University College Cork in Ireland. So sit back in your Dadaist armchair with your postmodern slippers on your feet and a serialist hot toddy in your hand and enjoy some of the more challenging sounds of the season. Bye. 
This is In Freezing Winter Night from Benjamin Britten's Ceremony of Carols, performed here by the Copenhagen Boys Choir, directed by the composer himself in a 1952 recording. This seemed like a good place to start, since Britten's great choral work is one of the rare pieces of modern music that one usually associates with the holidays. And let's face it, when most of us think of the last century and modernity generally, we don't normally think of joy to the world and peace on earth. In fact, it's quite the contrary. When we think of the 20th century, we think of modernity and we think of the wars, the First World War and the Second World War, and many of the horrors that came along with it. Which is why Claude Debussy's 1915 song, Noël des enfants qui n'ont plus de maison, is a good place to start Christmas in the 20th century. That was Debussy's Noël des enfants qui n'ont plus de maison, sung by Véronique Dicci with Emmanuel Strasser on piano. When I first heard the title, I imagined that this would be a heartwarming tale of homeless street urchins who would find the true meaning of Christmas somehow. And then I realized that, this being 1915, they'd just lost their homes to the German army and were calling on Père Noël, Father Christmas, to take Christmas cheer away from German children. So far from being heartwarming, it's kind of a 
bleak, vindictive Christmas carol. It's similar in many ways to Soir d'Hiver by Nadia Boulanger, the French composer who would train a generation of American modernists in the 1920s. Jill, the First World War and interwar modernism is really your area of expertise. Can you say that the war had sapped the joy out of Christmas by 1915, or is what we're seeing here more of a personal response to personal tragedy? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I think it's difficult. So I live a, a little more context. W.C. and Boulanger, yeah, I mean, they, they, like, Paris, we weren't at a point where Paris was um, being bombed on a regular basis. They were getting quite a bit of news from the front, though, and the news was not good. Um, and so they would have been familiar with a lot of that. They would have already lost close friends of theirs. They would have known people who were grieving at the time. Um, I believe at this point also... Um, they had other things that they were going through. So, for instance, um, Nadia Boulanger's uh, younger sister, Lily, had been sick for quite a long time and would die in 1918. And I believe at this point, W.C. had been diagnosed with cancer. He had rectal cancer and would pass away just uh, 10 days after Lily Boulanger. So, um, in March of 1918, when Paris was being bombed. Um, so, you know, while they perhaps didn't have the same experience, and I think that that's part of it, I think that, and this, 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 I'm going to make a conscious plug of my own research, but like, I think, I think that this goes to this idea of learning the importance of consolation. And I think that, especially earlier in the war years, in World War One, there was a real need for people to also music was was put into question the value of music was being debated um and very frequently people on the home front um were arguing that there was no, no point in composing and that um you know it was like making music was this kind of sacrilegious act when there were so many people dying on the front line so i guess that's how we get a song like soir d'hiver where a young french mother at christmas time in 1914 reflects on a husband missing in action and prays that her son will someday bring justice and vengeance to the enemy. Well, it's sung here by Rebecca Dupont-Davies.
Jill, it sounds like Christmas and, and music had already been thoroughly politicized at this point. Yet at the same time, the front line was, was a long way from Paris, psychologically, if not geographically. And, and one of the legends of the Great War is the Christmas truce of 1914. How did the frontline Poilu feel about this music? One of the things that I've noticed in my own work, reading the accounts of soldiers who were on the front lines during World War One, is that they cared to a certain extent about the um, the political nature of music and about um, making music that was political. Uh, and you do see them doing a fair amount of that. But honestly, you see so much more of this coming out of composers who were on the home front. And I think that that's for a couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons is because they were, um, I, I think they felt some kind of pressure to contribute to the war effort. And so creating patriotic music was, was one way of, um, of uh, doing their duty, in a sense, to their country. I, I think the other thing, though, was um, that they did not need the consolation quite as much while on the home front, you have people arguing against all Austro-German music, trying to ban all Austro-German music, and especially Wagner, the soldiers on the front lines did not care. 
if they talk all the time about what they played, and it's largely the Austro-German repertoire because that's what a lot of them would have grown up with, and it's what a lot of them grew up loving and what they knew by heart. And so you get these really heartbreaking stories of soldiers happening to walk into a house that's that's largely destroyed, and they find a piano, and they sit down and they play Wagner because to them, I think it's about finding the consolatory potential in music rather than focusing on the, the political per se. You're listening to Le Regard du Père, The Contemplation of the Father, from Olivier Messiaen's Vingt Regards sur l'Enfant Jésus, performed here by Michel Béroff. So we're listening to Messiaen's Vers Regards sur l'Enfant Jésus, one of the great works for solo piano in the 20th century. And, and you know, as you know, Messiaen was a deeply, deeply religious man who had explored his faith in music before. But there seems to be so much in this work that's a contemplation not just on the birth of the Savior, but also a meditation on that particular historical moment of the Second Great War of the 20th century when this was composed in 1944. 
And that seems to be true of so much of the music that he composed after his release from a prisoner of war camp in 1941. How did composers like Messiaen reconcile Christmas with a contemplation on tragedy and death and destruction? If we go through really extremely difficult situations, does that, um, does that make us need that consolation more? Does it make us need, it, like, is there an increased need for contemplation? And is, 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 are they designing this music? as a space for that and and maybe if there is a time for you to contemplate for you to just per perhaps give yourself a break from all of that you know people are going through shit are just going through shit you know like they don't get a break but maybe these composers permitted themselves to understand the holiday season as a time when they could just take a moment and try to create a space for peace. But is there a limit to that kind of spiritual contemplation? And, and did we reach it in the 20th century? I mean, as much as I respect the power and the depth of Messian's beliefs, I have to wonder if his belief in the redemptive power of faith was somehow shaken by the revelations of the Holocaust. If there's one central historical experience in the 20th century, it's the Nazi genocide. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that I can hear that reality in a great deal of the avant-garde music that was composed after 1945. When I listen to the music of George Ligeti or Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, Luigi Nono or Krzysztof Penderecki, especially from the 60s and 70s, I can't help but think of W.B. Yeats's poem, The Second Coming. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. This isn't messianic so much as it's apocalyptic. It's as if so many post-war avant-garde composers were trying to come to terms with the horrors of the age, but they couldn't reconcile them as neatly as Messiaen or even Britain in A Ceremony of Carols. For example, when I listen to Penderecki's Magnificat from 1974, even though it ultimately ends on a consonant chord, the microtonal dissonance of its opening sections evokes for me a meditation that simply can't comprehend the horror. I know the Magnificat is really part of the Advent liturgy, but as a celebration of the impending birth of the Christian Savior, Penderecki's Magnificat seems to be an encounter with the Unheimlich more than the sublime. Here it is, performed by the Polish National Radio Symphony Orchestra, and soloists and boys chorus from the Krakow Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by the composer.
this isn't exactly warm, consoling music. And I have to wonder if composers like Penderecki thought that after the Holocaust, draping the nativity in tinsel and consolation would somehow trivialize it. Uh, sort of how Roberto Benigni turned the Holocaust into a heartwarming story in his film La Vita e Bella. So I guess the question is, how could composers create music for Christmas after Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen that wasn't a critique of some kind? So I have a couple of things I want to say. One is I'm always hesitant when people give you a dissonance, dissolving all of that at the end. Like there's something that to me is too neat and tidy about that. And that again, I think, is um, this kind of demonstration of the limits of nostalgia. Um, or the limits of contemplation, let's say. Um, and I don't know that either of those things actually are are what that, you know, final resolution indicates. Okay, let's say the limits of resolution. I would say that, you know, that's kind of hitting up against the limits of, of what, what resolution can, can speak to. But the other thing is, in terms of it being a very public piece, and I think that this is something that we have to, that I just have a question about in general when we're talking about music that, is um, sacred or that is liturgical in some way. Well, I kind of specialize in, in music related to mourning. And I mean, I think very often with music related to mourning, you get one of two things. And I think this is actually represented with our, with our holiday selections, which is you get, you get music that is really in, it, designed um, in, in some ways to, to draw people in because there is this this emotional function and but, but but that also we get music that refuses to allow there to be a resolution to that to that morning um so it also makes sense that there would be this this combination of of music that might be very difficult to to listen to difficult to perform um but that also has moments of of significant resolution um, and music that is generally more approachable. That's very perceptive. The social role of holiday music, whether it's secular or religious, often seems to imply or, or even require a certain amount of simplification or smoothing out at the edges of the more adventurous modernism or avant-gardism. I can't help but recall the aesthetic of German political Gebrauchsmusik from the 1920s. And one example of that kind of accessibility is the music of Sir Peter Maxwell Davies. His eight songs for A Mad King shocked audiences in 1969, and much of his work was frankly pretty experimental. But his more public and occasion-oriented music often struck a unique balance between searching experimentation and tradition. Take, for example... Amen, Assay, Assay, and Ask Mercy While Thou May from his Five Carols, performed here by the King's College Choir, conducted by Stephen Cleobury.
Well, there is a bit of holiday warmth in that, Jill, but it's pretty mournful carol. What is the relationship between mourning and contemplation, especially at Christmas, and especially in Christmas music? I mean, how do they relate to each other, both culturally and socially? Well, that is such a good question, Matt. And I'm not going to be able to actually answer it, but, but what I will say is, um, I mean, I guess that the reason that mourning is coming up for me in this context is because we are talking about, uh, we, I mean, we kind of got into talking about post-war. Um, well, I guess we've been talking about post-war the whole time, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, and so how are people dealing with uh, creating pieces that are, um, that I guess that there's, there's some kind of expectation that there would be this moment of peace, of resolution, um, of contemplation around the holidays, that it's a time for you to contemplating what has occurred in the past year, um, contemplating um, one's, one's life, um, one's family. I mean, usually, you know, these holidays are spent with, with family. Um, and I think like in, if we're talking about religious contemplation, I imagine this being about, um, you know, contemplating one's faith, giving thanks, attempting to live in grace. Uh, but I think that, that all of these things, I think it's really important to acknowledge that all of these things have limits. <laughs> um, and I think that that's what we see many of these composers doing over and over again. That was Hodier Christus Natus Est from Francis Poulenc's Quatre Motet 
du temps de Noël, performed by the choir of St. John's College, Cambridge. Although it was composed in 1952 by one of the original French modernists of the avant-garde of the 1920s, neither this motet nor the other three could really be called modern, let alone avant-garde. If anything, it evokes the traditions of the past, of Gothic cathedrals and of the Middle Ages. What I find interesting is how so much Christmas music, whether it's popular, traditional, or even the avant-garde, evokes the past. Carols like God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen have melodies and modes that recall pastoral memories, even though they only date from the industrial 19th century. And so much modern classical Christmas music is sung in dead languages, like the Latin of Poulenc's motets or Middle English in the Ceremony of Carols. Before talking to Jill Rogers about Christmas music, I tended to dismiss all of that with all of my modernist and avant-gardist assumptions as somewhat tacky nostalgia. But I think Jill is right when she points to holiday music as a kind of space of contemplation, and by mobilizing the language, both words and music, of the past and evoking cultural memories, the best modernist Christmas music creates a space of contemplation and mourning of the inevitable loss of the previous year. And the past year has been one of loss in all areas, from the political to the cultural, from Baghdad to Tampa to Paris to the ruins of Aleppo. I don't know anyone who can look back on 2016 without mourning. And the loss was felt equally in the world of music. In the past year, we lost Pierre Boulez, Aino Rotavara, and just last month, Pauline Oliveros. Sir Peter Maxwell Davies died in March, and I would like to end this edition of No Sounds Are Forbidden with a work of his that opens a vast space of contemplation by reaching even further back than Christmas's past. After all, this time of year, when the nights are longest, is not only important to Christians and Jews, it's also the time of the solstice, when the year wanes down to a dark ending before being reborn and perhaps redeemed with the return of the sun and the promise of spring. This is the Celtic Priests from the Solstice of Light, composed by Sir Peter Maxwell Davies in 1979.
Well, that's all for this edition of No Sounds Are Forbidden. We'll be returning to a regular schedule next month. Join me then to listen to the rebirth of a European avant-garde in a reborn Europe after 1945. You can find playlists, reviews, and additional content at the companion website for this series at nosoundsforbidden.org. Please send email to show at nosoundsforbidden.org and surface mail to Matthew Friedman, Department of History, Rutgers University, 175 University Avenue, Newark, New Jersey, 07102. No Sounds Are Forbidden is written and produced by Matthew Friedman at Cat Tango Studios in Jersey City. Thank you.